Uh, I know we just prayed, but you've probably read the title on your bulletin, and I'm trying not to incite a riot this morning. And so uh, I'd like for us to pray again, if nothing else, just for myself. So if you would join me. Uh, God, thank you for this morning. Thanks for the opportunity to come and to worship you and to sing the truth that, God, you reign forever and ever. And, uh, Lord, to declare that, to mean that, God, my prayer this morning is that we would see that truth in your word, God, and that you would display for us by your spirit, through your word, what it looks like to live with an understanding that ultimately you reign, and yet we live here in a world where there's someone who serves in a governmental authority position above us. And God, you give us instructions about how it is that we should live in response to and in relationship with those persons and what it looks like to be faithful believers in the midst of that, God. And so would you speak to us through your word this morning, God? We long to be people who live lives that reflect the gospel and live lives that reflect the truth of who you are and how it is that you want us to live, God. And this is an important arena, particularly in our nation right now. And so... Uh, God, would you teach us? Would you speak to our hearts? Would your spirit take the truth of your word and, and plant it into our hearts, God? And would we go from here living in response to that? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We, uh, we're going to take scripture as it comes to us here. And so a few months ago, as we were wrapping up the book of Psalms, our teaching through some of the Psalms, we sat down as a staff and we talked about what should be the thing that we do next. And we had a couple of different options all from the New Testament. We landed on 1 Peter and there were a couple of passages of 1 Peter that made me a little bit nervous. And somehow this one wasn't one of them until I got to it. And here we are. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to look at a five verse section of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 13 to 17 that are all about what it looks like to submit to government. And so we're going to look at what Peter has to say in those uh, few sentences. But we're also going to then kind of take a step back and answer some of the logical questions that would come from a text like this, given our current cultural, political climate and just kind of where we are. And so we'll take those uh, at the end kind of as the implications of what it is that we see Peter has to say here. So... Uh, if you've got your Bible and you want to get it open to 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to take a look at those verses in just, in just a second. Uh, we have a thing that we kind of do as people in our society today, and it's not uniquely a Christian thing. It, it just happens. Uh, we, we like to think that our circumstances are both unique to us and also the like fill-in-the-blank extreme of that thing. And so you wake up one morning... You're running a little bit behind schedule, and naturally that's the morning that the kids are a little bit of a challenge to get out the door. And so by the time you, you get them out the door, you swing through and grab yourself a coffee or something, and then you're in traffic, and the coffee spills, and you get to work, and you're convinced that this is the worst morning that anyone's ever had, and no one's ever had it beside you. That, that's prideful to think that, first of all. Uh, second, it's just not true. You were probably one of about a thousand people in Kansas City alone that had that exact experience on the same highway that morning. We, we like extrapolate these things out to be totally unique to us and to be 
the absolute superlative on one side or the other of that type of circumstance. You can see that in our political situation right now. You don't have to read the newspaper very far or watch the news for very long or scroll very far on your Facebook feed to find individuals who are convinced that this is the worst possible election that anyone has ever had to vote in or that this is the most difficult set of political kind of governmental circumstances that Christians have ever had to exist in. And the reality is that's just wrong. There are faithful brothers and sisters the world over who face much more challenging political situations in their country than we do. They've got dictators who are incredibly harsh. They live in a place where they have no voice politically. There are faithful brothers and sisters in the world right now and throughout history who have lived underneath governments who literally wanted to kill them and tried to kill them because of their faith. Not long ago, in this country, actually, as we were becoming a country, faithful Christian men and women had to decide when was the right point to take up arms against a government in order to free ourselves from their reign. Christians throughout history have had to try to figure out the right way to interact with the government. And the Bible is actually instructive in the midst of that. And so we're going to look at that this morning. And it all hinges on one word. It all hinges on the word submit, which is a word we're not crazy about in America. Because we confuse the word submit with the word subjugate. And those are two very different things. To subjugate or to be subjugated is forcible. It's pressed upon you. You're forced into a certain situation where you've got no other option than to bow to the authority structure over the top of you, and it can be harsh, and it can be painful, and you can do nothing about it. Submission, the biblical definition of submission, is different than that. The biblical definition of submission is to willingly place ourselves under somebody else's authority, willingly. That's what we're going to see this morning. In fact, that idea of submission, of a willing placing underneath someone else's authority, is how Peter is going to orient the next three paragraphs of his letter here in 1 Peter. It's going to talk about submitting in government, submitting in kind of workplace relationships, and submitting in the home. And that word becomes the basis for the way that Peter says Christians are to conduct themselves in these particular relationships and environments. And so we're going to see that play out over the next three weeks. It's really important this morning, though, that we understand why or how it is that Peter arrived in this place. And so we talked about that the first 12 verses of 1 Peter are just densely packed with all kinds of truth statements about who we are as Christians and who God is and what the gospel is. And we lumped those into some categories. And the one that's going to really define how it is that we talk this morning is the reality that this is not your home. The fact that this is not your home, Peter says, makes it possible for us to submit. And we'll get to that in a minute. Instead, you've got an indestructible inheritance in the future, and you're headed toward that place, and it's unbreakable and unbendable, and it can't be taken away from you, and nothing anybody does here on this earth could alter that reality for you. But suffering and persecution because of righteousness, because of your faith, might come. And it's temporary, and God wants to use it to mold you more into his image, and it has a purpose. And your Savior, he's going to come back, 
and you're going to spend eternity with him, and that suffering is going to be okay. And then out of those statements about who we are as Christians, Peter said, we're to live holy lives. That what marks us as followers of Jesus should be this set-apart kind of living for the glory of the Lord and for the sake of the gospel and the good news. And uh, that that's what should be the indicator of a Christian's life and what should be the outward appearance of what's happened inwardly in the heart of a believer. And so he gave some motivations for that, that you've got a relationship with a loving father and that you've got a reverent fear of a judge who's going to judge impartially on the last day and that you've got an appropriate understanding of the cost of redemption, that when Jesus hung on the cross in your place, that was costly. And that those things should motivate you to wake up every morning and just battle your sinful flesh and to fight with it and to struggle to live this kind of holy life that aligns itself with the standard we see in God's word. And then he said that that plays itself out in this kind of self-sacrificing love for brothers and sisters within the church. And that our holiness is a collective effort. That the world sees the goodness of the gospel thanks to the collective holiness of God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy temple. That we display the goodness of the gospel, that we display the reality of Jesus Christ by the way that we collectively as a body of believers live out our faith. And that led Peter to a two-verse kind of final encouragement that transitions us from this kind of idea of holiness to a very practical outworking of what it looks like. And so this is 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, this isn't your home, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter refuses to let us kind of wobble back and forth in what does that mean? What does it mean to keep my conduct honorable among the Gentiles so that they may see and glorify the Lord on the day of his visitation? How does that actually play itself out? And so because he refuses to do that, he gives us three concrete examples. And this first one is all about how we relate to the government. He says this, verses 13 through 17. Be subject or submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Willingly place yourself under the ordained authority of your government for the Lord's sake. That's Peter's instruction. The hallmark of a Christian's interaction, the the default kind of disposition of a Christian when we interact with any person, whether they be a, a person that's on kind of equal strata with us in terms of social place in a business or in life or whether it be someone that you're underneath, a parent or a teacher or a governmental authority or a boss, whether it be someone who's underneath you, an employee or a child or whatever the case might be, our default disposition should be one of submission and honoring the other person. If you're taking notes, you can jot down 
Philippians 2, verse 3. Paul actually tells believers that they're not supposed to be looking out for their own interests in anything. He says not to have any selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility to consider others better than yourself. That we should be looking out for the interests of others, not to the interests of ourselves. That instead of operating in relationships the way that most of the world does, a Christian is marked by the fact that they're not interested in propping themselves up. Instead, they're interested in holding up and honoring another person. That we submit in that sort of way. That we want to lift up the people that we're around. And so what is operating kind of in the background or the framework of a Christian's lifestyle, Peter says, that applies to the government as well. That you would submit to the government and honor the government, honor the emperor, honor the governors who are sent on his behalf. That's kind of piece number one here. But there's a tension that comes into play. Because Peter says, here's what the government is sent for, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And if that's always how the government operated, it would be pretty easy to submit, would it not? Well, they're just looking out for everybody's best interest. They're punishing evil. They're honoring good. It becomes really easy to submit to that. Well, the natural issue is that sometimes we find ourselves underneath governmental structures or authorities who actually praise what is evil and punish what is good. Or they praise what is evil, glorify what is evil, and ridicule what is good. So the natural question is, what do we do then? How do we submit to something like that? If, if the call of a Christian is to willingly place myself under the authority of government because they're punishing evil and praising good, what happens when they're getting that backwards? What do we do then? I want to give just a couple of thoughts. The first is this. We can't let ourselves get lured into acting with a, in accordance with the world in order to receive its praise. If the government structure or the society structure or the cultural norms of the place where we live is going to glorify evil and ridicule or push aside good, we cannot get lured into behaving in accordance with that so that we can receive the world's praises. In that instance, we don't want the world's praise. If they're going to praise what's evil, we don't want to be associated with that. You see, as a believer... We live kind of in like this two-tiered authority structure. Peter says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. As believers, we fall under the moral law, the moral direction of a holy and righteous and perfect God who has given us holy and righteous and perfect morality in Scripture to look at and to see and to model our lives after. In an ideal world, in following that, we would automatically fall in line with the government. Fortunately, that's not always the way that things work out. And so when those two things come into contrast with one another, we always seek to obey the Lord. We always seek to fall in line with what it is that God has said in His Word, even if that puts us at odds with what might be praised in our culture. We can see this play itself out in all areas of life here in America. There are times 
where what the Lord has called us to is very different than what gets praised in our society. We can't get lured into acting in accordance with glorified evil or glorified immorality in order to receive the praise of the world. Here's the second thought on that. We need to continually entrust ourselves to a just judge. Jump down to verse 23 in 1 Peter 2. We're going to see this more clearly. We're going to spend more time on it next week, but it's worth looking at now. Peter's talking about Jesus, and he says, When Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ faced unimaginable evil. And he faced unimaginable evil despite having done nothing to deserve it. And in that moment, Peter reminds us, he didn't revile in return and he didn't threaten. Instead, he just continued to entrust himself to the Lord who's going to judge justly. And we should do the same. If we find ourselves in a place where evil is glorified or where evil is rewarded and praised, whereas good is ridiculed or pushed aside, we need to continue to operate under the Lord's definition of goodness while entrusting Him to judge perfectly on the last day. That God knows ultimate evil and He knows ultimate good and He's going to reward and He's going to punish in accordance with that on the last day. And this isn't our home, so it's only temporary. And when we arrive at the last day, He'll set everything straight. We continually entrust ourselves to a just judge. And then here's the third thought there, which Peter's readers didn't have as an option, but we do. And that's that we can use our voice to put faithful people into decision-making positions. We have the ability to vote. We can try to find faithful men and women who are running for office and then use our voice to elect them into those positions. Peter's readers didn't have that choice. Unfortunately, we live in a time where it's becoming increasingly difficult to both find those individuals and elect them into those positions and to garner enough Christian support in order to actually win a popular vote and get them into those positions. It's becoming increasingly challenging to do that. And it's probably only going to get more challenging to do that. Most of the world is what is known as post-Christian, that at a certain time, a nation was dominated by Christian values and Christian morals, and that formed the framework or the backdrop of a society. But those countries have moved on. We're in the process of moving on. We're in the process of going from Christian as the framework of our nation to something different. And as we move more and more post-Christian, it's going to be harder and harder to find faithful men and women to put into these positions in order to govern our nation. But we shouldn't stop using our voice toward that end. And this is what Peter says the result of this submission is. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I don't know how it works exactly that by submitting to the government that is over the top of us, we somehow display the goodness of the gospel. I'm not 100% sure how that works. Peter's readers at this time were the bottom rung of minority society in their cities. 
In fact, a lot of people outside of the church at Peter's time thought that the church was subversive, that they wanted to overthrow the government or they wanted to push the powers that be out of power. And so the worst thing that could happen in a society would be a group of Christians moving into that place and trying to overthrow everything. And Peter said, no, you willingly submit yourself to those leaders and in so doing, you will silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. By just simply submitting. But it sets up a tension, though. It sets up the tension between what does it look like to ultimately follow the Lord and yet at the same time submit to the power structure that's over the top of me. And so Peter goes on. And he just brings the tension right out. Remember, verse 13. Submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Verse 16. Live as people who are free. That seems in direct opposition to one another. How do I submit and yet live as a person who is free? The answer lies in the truth that your servanthood to God has given you freedom from men. Really what it's given you is freedom from the fear of men. You're not home. You've got this indestructible inheritance. You're servant of the Lord. You submit for His sake. And even if things go poorly, what's the worst that could happen? When you placed your faith in Jesus, you received a reward that's greater than any reward you could get here. You received salvation, an eternal home with the Lord. When you placed your faith in Jesus, you got this indestructible inheritance. And even if to the very nth degree that your faith in Jesus Christ meant that living in the place where you live, they were going to kill you for it. Peter says, you don't have to fear that. Your servanthood to the Lord has given you freedom from men. They ultimately cannot do anything to you. And so submission there silences their foolish talk. I don't know exactly how it works. But I do know that what Peter instructs us to do is to submit freely, even joyfully, for the Lord's sake, that he would receive glory and honor and attention and that the gospel would be made known and be made attractive by the way that believers submit to the government around them. And he ends with four commands, four very succinct sentences. He says, honor everyone. That's the way that we're supposed to interact with all the people around us. Honor all people. Philippians 2.3. And then he says, love the church. That while you honor everybody that you come into contact with, you've got a special kind of love for the people within the church. You're absolutely honoring all people, but you're really giving of yourself to brothers and sisters within the body. And then he says, fear the Lord. He's encouraging his readers not to fear the king, even though the king or the emperor or whoever is in charge could be the one who ultimately causes their persecution. You don't fear that person, he says. You fear the Lord. You don't fear who could become emperor or could become king or could become governor. You fear the Lord. You're having conversations about our current political climate or you're scrolling through Facebook and you see people who have this belief that 
no matter who gets elected president, the world is going to come to an end, or at least America as we know it. When I read that, I read fear of an individual. I read fear of a person. What's the worst thing that could happen here in America? I mean, you could play out all of the doomsday predictions, right? That American society as we know it would totally collapse, whether that be economically, politically, civilly, whatever the case might be, that we could end up in a position where the church is persecuted. Well, I'll tell you this. None of that would catch the Lord off guard. It would be impossible for something to happen here including who gets elected president in a month, and have that surprise God. In Romans 13, Paul says that every government leader is placed in authority by the Lord. I don't know exactly how all that works because some really evil people are placed into government, and that's a hard thing to wrestle with. But that's what we're told. So nothing could happen here in America that would catch God off guard. And the same kind of fire that people think might ignite here in a month or so or over the next four years and end up just burning America could be the exact fire that God wants to use to actually refine his church. That as a result of what happens politically or in the government over the next four, eight, ten years, whatever the case might be here in America, God could actually be using, no matter how difficult or challenging it becomes, to refine the church so as to make the gospel more appealing to non-believers here in America. That could absolutely be the case. And as Christians, we need to trust the sovereignty of God in that. It doesn't mean we just wash our hands of the whole deal. It doesn't mean that we just cast everything off. It means that we use our voice, we take part, we do what we can, we submit underneath the governmental authority here while ultimately entrusting the sovereignty of God to advance his church, not necessarily America the country. You don't have to be in the church very long. You don't have to be in the church at all to understand that there's a thought that exists in America, that there's a special blessing from the Lord on America. God bless America. I absolutely want the Lord to bless America, whether that be financially or religiously or Whatever the case might be, economically, politically, I hope that those blessings continue. But if I'm being totally honest, I hope those blessings continue for totally selfish reasons. I want it to continue to be comfortable and easy to be a Christian here in America. I want it to be economically, financially advantageous to live here and to work here and to use and spend my life here with my family. But should the Lord choose for some of those blessings to no longer be the case? As people who love him and follow him, we would have to trust that he's got an eternal purpose for that. And that that eternal purpose includes people coming to know the gospel. Again, it doesn't mean we just cast everything off, but it does mean that we entrust the future of this nation and the future of our lives in this nation to the sovereignty of the Lord. The last instruction that Peter gives is to honor the king, honor the emperor. Fear the Lord, honor the authority structure appropriate to their position. 
If the president showed up to your house, regardless of how you feel about the president or whoever that individual is, you would act a certain way. You would give that person a certain degree of honor. They deserve that, Peter says. The Roman emperor at times uh, was deified. It's thought that he was a god. And Peter says, no. That's an individual. That's a human, a man. You fear the Lord while you honor that person. You submit to the government while ultimately living as a servant of the Lord. The Bible gives us a few pictures of what that actually looks like. What does it look like to freely submit even though I'm free from any particular man? What does it look like to fear the Lord and honor the king? How does that actually play out? There's two examples from the life of Daniel. When Daniel is taken into captivity by the Babylonians, he's placed into this kind of training type uh, program where they're indoctrinated to become good Babylonian leaders and go back to their people, the Jewish people, and infiltrate them with Babylonian culture and all of those kinds of things. Daniel arrives there, and part of what they're supposed to do is eat this food that comes from the king's table. Well, Daniel knows that that's been sacrificed to an idol, and he says, I won't eat it. I won't eat your food. Give me vegetables and water, me and my three friends. And there's an individual over the top of them, some sort of authority figure within this training program. And that person says, hey, if you don't eat the food and you end up sick or not as healthy or not as strong as the other people here, I'll get punished. In fact, I'll probably die. And now Daniel's in a situation where he's got to figure out, okay, how do I fear the Lord, honor the authority? And he says, okay, let's do this. For 10 days, you give me and my three friends vegetables and water. And if at the end of those 10 days, we look any worse for the wear than anyone else around us, we will take the punishment. Fear the Lord. I will not eat the food sacrificed to to idols. Honor the authority structure. But I understand that there could be some circumstances here. The next comes just a little while later when the king, the emperor at the time, issues an edict that everybody's got to bow down and worship this statue. And if you don't bow down and worship the statue, you'll be thrown into a fiery furnace and burned. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, we simply will not bow down. We cannot worship any other god than the one true god. Then we're going to throw you in the furnace. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, then we'll burn. Fear the Lord honor the king. I understand. There's an authority structure here and there's a punishment laid out, but I cannot worship anything else. That's fearing the Lord, honoring the king. While Jesus is praying in the garden and they come to arrest him, uh, some of his disciples are there and one of them pulls out a sword and takes a swing and it cuts off the ear of one of the individuals that's come to arrest him. And Jesus says, you put your sword away. I know what my future is. I know I'm headed to the cross. And we're going to let them arrest me. He's got a fear of the Lord that he would want to be obedient even to the point of his own death. And yet, he's going to go ahead and honor the authority structure and go through trial and arrest and everything that comes with it. Fear the Lord. Honor the king. Willingly submit to the authority structure, the human authority structure that's placed over the top of you while at the same time living as a servant of the Lord. There's a tension there, but it's how we're called to live. And it plays itself out into some logical questions for us 
today as we face the upcoming election here in a month? I think these are questions that have been running through people's minds for quite some time now as we've, as we've led up to this moment. They're questions that are going to only intensify over the next month as we get closer and closer to the election. And the first one is this. Should we be surprised? Should we be surprised by what we're experiencing in a political sense today? I think the answer is no. Let me tell you why. Because every human government that's ever existed on the face of the planet has been run by broken and sinful human beings, which means that they build broken and oftentimes sinful systems in order to govern other people who are also broken and sinful. And until Jesus appears on the ballot, it's never going to be any better. In fact, if you read through much of the Old Testament, if you look at the book of Judges, for instance, or the book of First or Second Kings, you will see that things typically slide further away from the Lord, not drift closer to Him. And so I don't think we should be surprised by what we're experiencing now. Can we be saddened by it, frustrated by it, disappointed by it? Absolutely. But should we be surprised that there would be people wanting to be in positions of power who are sinful and broken and maybe not the best examples to have in those positions? We shouldn't be surprised by that. It's a human being in a broken structure trying to govern broken people. The next question is this. Can I disagree and still be submissive? Can I disagree with what the government's doing and yet still honor the king? The answer is yes. Yes, you can disagree and still be submissive. Submitting does not necessarily mean that we blindly accept everything as it is, but it does mean that in our disagreement, we seek to respect the other position. We honor that individual. And over the course of the last week, I have been particularly challenged on this point. Let me tell you why. I disagree with quite a bit about some of what's going on in the political landscape at the moment. And oftentimes, I allow my language and the way I talk about those individuals or the things that are happening to be far less than honorable and respectful. I can only compare it to how would my parents want me to talk about them while they're not around? We think that these levels of separation exist, and plenty of levels of separation exist between us and those who hold the highest political office. And so because they're never going to hear us say it, we feel like we can just call them all sorts of names and throw all sorts of darts at them, when the reality is our non-Christian neighbors, friends, relatives see that. It doesn't look particularly submissive, and it doesn't make the gospel look particularly attractive. We can disagree, absolutely, but we must do so respectfully. We've got to do so in a way that still honors the political powers that be that are above us. Leads to the next question. Can I protest and still be submissive? Absolutely. Acts 5.29 says we must obey God rather than men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said, I won't budge here. You can throw me into the fiery furnace. When it comes time to protest, I think we'll know it. And if the president or the king or whoever is in charge tells you to do something that clearly violates a command of the Lord, then you stand on the side of the Lord and you smile on your way to jail. You can read the book of Acts and watch Peter do that more than once. And then watch him get out of prison and praise the Lord for being counted worthy of suffering on his behalf. You can absolutely protest and still be submissive. 
The last question I want to answer is this. Should I take part in the government? The answer is yes. We need good, faithful people to lead this nation in positions of governmental authority. And so long as we live as aliens and sojourners and exiles in this place, we're supposed to work for kingdom-like realities in our world. And one way to do that would be to put faithful brothers and sisters into decision-making positions in our government. Now, not every single person is called to a governmental position. Not every person would, not most people would want one. But when there is a faithful man or woman in those positions, we should absolutely want them to be there to make biblically-minded decisions on behalf of our nation. But we all do have a role in which we take part in the government, and that's that we have the privilege to vote. And it's a common question right now in Christian circles of, is it a biblical imperative that I vote if I don't feel like I can, in good conscience, give a vote to any of the options that are available? Voting has brought a lot of opinions on both sides of that equation. You can go out and find incredibly faithful, knowledgeable, well-intentioned, wonderful men and women writing in support of you must vote as a Christian. It's sinful if you don't, or you don't have to vote if you're a Christian. The fact that all of that material exists ought to tell us that it's a difficult issue that doesn't have a really clean answer. I come at it from this perspective. Voting is absolutely a civic duty and one that we should take seriously. We should seek to vote biblically. We should seek to put candidates into office who stand for biblical values. We should think hard about who we're electing and what they claim they'll do when they arrive in office. And we should use our voices and the privilege of our voting in order to best advance the type of good in this nation that glorifies the Lord. Now, if you arrive at a place where your conscience tells you, I simply cannot offer a vote toward that end, I don't think it's sinful. It's not a biblical imperative, I don't think, to vote. Mostly because voting wasn't an option when Peter wrote. Voting wasn't an option when Paul wrote. As people who want to live lives that glorify the Lord in this place, voting is part of our way that we can do that. And so we should take that responsibility seriously and we should do it thoughtfully. The reality at the end of all things is this. On November 9th, Wednesday... We're all going to wake up. We will have likely stayed up to some degree to watch results of the election roll in. And when we wake up on Wednesday morning, the sun is going to rise and Jesus is still going to be on the throne. And whoever has been elected into office on November 9th is not going to have been a surprise to the Lord. Which means that what we need to be figuring out as Christians at this point is... How will we commit ourselves to faithfully following the Lord and submitting in this sort of way, regardless of who that individual is? Because on November or on January 20th, someone's going to be sworn into office. And on November 21st, the sun is going to come up and Jesus is still going to be on the throne. And the Bible makes it clear that in the way that we as believers interact with the government that's over the top of us, how we submit to them while serving the Lord is a means by which we display the gospel. And as a church, nationwide, we need to be prepared to do that and to glorify the Lord in the midst of our willful submission to whoever is placed in governmental authority over the top of us. Our prayer should be that the next season of life here in America is one that advances not a political agenda, 
but the gospel and the kingdom of the Lord. And that whatever God decides to do and whoever he places into power over the top of us is going to be the right person in his plan to advance the gospel the best way possible. If only we would be faithful and obedient to coming underneath that and submitting to government while serving the Lord. That needs to be our goal as a Christian as we approach not just the next month, but the next season of life here in America. And so um, I want to take some time to pray for us this morning, uh, and then we'll go from here. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to come and to worship. God, thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. God, thank you that nothing could happen here in the next month or in the next few years that would catch you off guard or take you by surprise. Lord, I'm thankful that we can rest in your sovereignty. God, I'm thankful that we can trust that you're going to do here on this earth what is best to advance the message of the gospel, Lord. God, my prayer is that as Christian brothers and sisters, we would prayerfully and humbly and passionately seek to live in response to that as best we possibly can, Lord, that we would encourage one another in the midst of it, that we would hold forth the gospel in the midst of it, God, and that advancing the fame of Jesus Christ would be more important to us than comfort or ease, that it would be more important to us than a particular person in office, God, and that we would entrust ourselves as servants of yours to whatever plan you have for this nation going forward. God, I pray that you would empower us to submit when we need to submit, to respectfully disagree when we may need to respectfully disagree. God, to even protest when we may need to protest. But in the midst of doing those things, God, that we would honor the governmental authorities and persons over the top of us as we fear you. God, would you help your church nationwide to fear the Lord, honor the government, and submit to the government, Lord. And in so doing, would you make yourself known? Would you put to silence the ignorant talk of foolish men and make known the glorious greatness of Jesus Christ and his gospel in this nation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great week. We will see you uh, next Sunday.